it's Jamie here, and welcome back to Bloody Bites. And so the madness continues. Today's subject, today's Bloody Bite, is Codebreaker from Dot to Dash. Hi, it's Tom here. I can see you're going to need to get your brain in gear for this one. So before we start, here's a recording of my grandfather talking about one of his wireless operators in the First World War. In spite of all the horrors of war, there was from time to time a certain amount of humour in it. I always remember in the First War, when we were down to uh, pretty near the bone for men, and everybody who could... Uh, walk on one leg or see out of one eye was regarded as fit for service. I had an ancient old cockney sent to me as a telephone operator. And he did fine. Although he could hardly walk, his brain was as sharp as cockney's brains always are. And he very soon tumbled to the process of operating the switchboard. And after a day's tow instruction, he seemed to be getting on fine. He even got the hang of, uh, on his own terms, of what is known as the telephonist alphabet. You know, if uh, you can't hear properly the word monkey, you say spell it, and somebody says M for mother, O for onion, N for nuts, etc., etc., etc. Well, one day, this, uh, telephone operator was overheard trying to get a call through to an ailing number. It appears that the girl at the other end of the telephone couldn't get the word ailing. So he starts up on his idea of the telephone operator's alphabet. He says, Alpha Mo, miss, now Alpha Mo, I'll spell it for you. Ailing, E for Herbert. A, what horses eats. L, where you goes when you dies. I, what you says when he wants a taxi. N, what lays eggs. G, for go blimey. Have you got it? Needless to say, the girl, being a good cockney herself, had got it. Everyone loves a secret. In fact, they don't only just love it, they need it. Every government... Every state has its secrets, needs to know the secrets of the enemy. And quite often, survival is at stake. If you don't believe me, go back to World War II and the Battle of the Atlantic. Here you had Britain almost choked off by the Nazi U-boat menace. And over the war, over that period, about 19 million tons of merchant shipping was sunk. Three and a half thousand merchant ships, 175 warships, thousands of sailors and servicemen lost their lives. And if it hadn't been for the breaking of the ultra-secret, the Enigma Code, put together by the Germans, used by the Germans, if it hadn't been for the breaking of the Lorenz Code, all done at Bletchley Park, Station X, 
Britain would have been defeated, would have been choked off, and the invasion of Europe, the uh, counteroffensive on Europe and the Normandy landings would not have happened because U.S. servicemen, U.S. power and force would not have reached across the Atlantic. So that is why codes and code-breaking is so important. And you can see it in the modern age. In 1970, the CIA bought and bought into Crypto AG, a Swiss cyber security, a Swiss communication security company. And through that, they managed to spy, break into the communications of so many countries, whether it was Pakistan, India, Iran, and of course, all around Latin America. And that was hugely useful to Britain during the Falklands War. And thank you, Caspar Weinberger, the American Secretary of State for Defense, because he allowed those decrypts to come to Britain, uh, along with things such as all aspects, sidewinder missiles and communications gear for special forces. So that was extremely important. So as we can see, communications, breaking communications are vital. And the CIA went on with their interest in crypto AG, that company, until about 2018 when the company was disbanded. So you can see all the way through from Bletchley Park to Crypto AG, communications, codes and code breaking are critical. But let's go back to ancient times because they've always been around these codes. Uh, the Hebrews, the Old Testament, they had a code called Atbash, and it was more a control mechanism by priests who wanted to control the agenda, a bit like interpreting the Kabbalah codes, the Kabbalistic rites of the Hebrew faith. And so that goes back a long way. You go back to things such as hieroglyphs. It wasn't until 1799 that the Rosetta Stone was found. For 2,000 years, no one had been able to read hieroglyphs, but suddenly the Rosetta Stone appeared and it had hieroglyphs, it had demotic language, it had Greek. So you suddenly had this plan. You could see what hieroglyphs meant. And that allowed this swathe of Egyptian history to be read, this, this code to be broken. And it had been produced in the reign of Ptolemy V in the second century BC. And even then, hieroglyphs weren't being used. Things had moved on. So it was amazing these Egyptian priests had produced that. And that was extremely useful, extraordinarily useful. The ancient Greeks, the Spartans, for example, used a code. They used one called the Sictali, and the Sitali or the Sital uh, used a device. You wrap parchment round a, a rotating drum or round a, a rotating instrument, and that allowed a code to be taken, sent to others, uh, other war commanders, battlefield commanders, or to political leaders and kings, and they could put the, the parchment on a similar device and read the code. Most codes tend to be substitution or transposition. Substitution, you simply substitute letters for uh, numbers or for symbols, such as the ones that Mary Queen of Scots used, for example, and it was eventually caught out. 
but uh, transposition is where you just jumble up the letters in various coding machines and other things. And, and so it's always a question of reading through, finding the patterns, trying to break them. And that's what code breakers have tried to do uh, throughout history. So you got this Sital or Sitali in ancient Greece. The Romans, too, used codes. Julius Caesar used a simple shift key, a code that shifted the letter one along in the alphabet. So it, it was a bit like the Atbash code of the ancient Hebrews, uh, but, but it was just shifting it forward. The, the Hebrews tend to work it backwards. So the uh, Augustus Caesar shifted it uh, one along, uh, and uh, Caesar shifted it actually three letters along. So it was a bit, a bit more sophisticated, but, but not by very much. This code use, this use of code has developed. I mean, the Greeks, uh, not just the Spartans, but, but overall, um, codes were in, in a lot of use. I mean, K King Histeus in the 6th century BC used to write coded notes on slaves' heads or messengers' heads after they were shaved and then let the hair grow back. So that's quite a long-term uh, <laughs> endurance code, basically. There was another king uh, called Lysander of Sparta, a great king who defeated the Athenians in the Peloponnesian Wars. And he used to have his messengers carry coded messages in, on the inside of their belts. So all this running around, all this trying to save battlefield secrets and get battlefield commands to, uh, to other people was extremely useful, was absolutely critical to the, to the battlefield of the age and has remained so ever since. Then you move on in history to the Elizabethan period, for example, and we all know about Sir Francis Walsingham, great hero of mine. I put him in my thriller realm about the Spanish Armada, and he's the godfather of modern espionage. He believed in dirty tricks, campaigns, black propaganda. He had agents from Turkey to North Africa and up to the Baltics. He had spies in every court. He had intelligences. He, he ha even had um, intelligence agents in the seminary of uh, the Catholics in Rome. And uh, you know, he ended up using his code breaker, Thomas Phelps, or Phelps, and John Summer to break the Babington plot when uh, Mary Queen of Scots was in Chartley Hall a prisoner there, they had Anthony Babington contact her, promising to assassinate Queen Elizabeth and bring in the French and Spanish fleets. It always involved getting the Spanish and French involved. And it followed on from other plots, the Throckmorton plot a few years previously. And, and then there were so many plots to assassinate Elizabeth. There were horsemen going to attack her while she was out riding. There was a plot to poison her bedclothes. And Walsingham was always on top of it, always knew what was going on. And his code breakers at Seething Lane in London and at uh, Barn Elms, his other house just outside, uh, was a, a sort of centre, were centres of espionage, centre of code breaking and the sending secret messages, receiving them and intercepting them. 
And, you know, again, you can go back to things like the Templars, uh, medieval times. They, they were using codes a lot as well. And much has been said about the Templars and their secrecy. And this legend has grown up about, you know, their codes and what they meant and the signs they used. What's important about the Templars is that there were actually very few of them, certainly on the military side. Uh, you know, when they were formed in about 1118, consecrated as warrior monks in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre by King Baldwin II in Jerusalem in 1119, there were only nine of them, including two Cistercian monks, and they had that austere Cistercian aspect to them. And they certainly used codes. They developed banking. They developed shipping lines. They developed the concept of the multinational company. And of course, they also created such things as deposit boxes and travelers checks and current accounts because you know p their job was to, to guard pilgrims and the holy sites in the kingdom of Jerusalem. But as I said, there were very few military knights. It was mostly a commercial organization. And you can tell that there were few uh, military knights, because by the time of the Battle of Hattin in 1187, when Saladin beat the, the Christian army, there were only 200 hospitalers and Templars uh, actually captured and, and beheaded. The year before, at the Springs of Cresson, the Grand Master of the Templars, uh, Gerard de Riedfort, had charged a far larger Muslim force with only 120 knights or so. There were only 90 Templars and Hospitallers with him. So again, as I said, there were very, very few military around. But of course, once Philip IV of France got greedy, once he wanted the Templar treasure, once the Christians had been pushed back to the coast of Outremer, the, uh, the overseas possessions of the Christian kingdoms. There was no role for the Templars anymore, so they were easy prey. They hadn't fulfilled their role. They hadn't protected Jerusalem and the holy sites. So Philip IV, uh, come sort of 1207, decided to have them arrested, and it ended up by 1214 with uh, the Grand Master Jacques de Molay being uh, burnt at the stake before Notre Dame Cathedral on Ile de la Cité, so on the Seine. So, you know, that was the end of the Templars. At the castle of Chinon, there were signs of uh, handshakes, of hearts, of stars, of pentagrams, and people have always read that as Templar code, Templar signs. But in fact, things such as the pentagram were very well known. They'd, they were used, well, from Mesopotamia onwards or Mesopotamian pottery. And the, the pentagram itself, the five-pointed star, represented in Christian circles the wounds of Christ. It was also in the seal of Jerusalem. And so it was seen in a lot of different places. In Hebrew history, it was seen as the five uh, first chapters of, of the Bible, of the Torah. So, you know, the pentagram was around. It only acquired a cult and satanic status far later on, several centuries on. 
Um, and as for the Roslyn Chapel and its carvings and uh, bushels of wheat and heads of wheat, it's, it's just normal Christian symbols. It has nothing to do with codes. So uh, don't get too hung up on that. The Templars certainly use the same ancient sort of codes, rotating drums and other sort of code devices that have been around since ancient times. We move forward to the Second World War, where, of course, codes were still important. I mentioned at the beginning uh, Bletchley Park, and you can see that the attempt, the desire to get hold of German code books and Enigma machines uh, took some very brutal turns, some very dangerous turns. I mean, in 1941, the Royal Navy captured U-110 and managed to get an Enigma machine. That was incredibly important. The following year, in 1942, in the Mediterranean, uh, not off the southern coast of Iceland this time, the Royal Navy managed to capture U-559, and two sailors died getting the code books off before the submarine sank. But that was critical, and from then on, the Brits had complete insight into the whole ultra-secrets, into, into the Enigma machine and the German coding system, and that was critical. In 1944, the Americans managed to capture whole and force the surface U-505, and they got more codes there, and they also managed to get secrets about the German acoustic torpedo technology. And that submarine was taken back to America and taken on tours of America to, to uh, sort of encourage um, enthusiasm for the, for the war against the Japanese. So all this was incredibly important. And at Bletchley Park, you had Alan Turing, you had devices such as the bomb and the Colossus, Colossus being used to break the Lorenz system, the 12-wheel uh, German coding system which was incredibly complex. And there were two and a half thousand valves in the Colossus machine. And it was so good, and it was invented by Tommy Flowers at the British Post Office, but it was so advanced, so good, that it was still being used by GCHQ. Two versions of the Colossus were being used up to 1960, which is absolutely extraordinary. So that code breaking and the American code breaking of Code Purple, the Japanese cipher, had a critical impact on the war. In the Cold War, code breaking breaking into the Soviet system was also extremely important. But come 1948, you had Black Friday, and that was the day that the Soviets suddenly changed their ciphers because, of course, they had been tipped off by traitors, NKVD agents in the West, such as Kim Philby and William Weissband in America, that the West were managing to listen into their communications. So that all changed. It was very difficult during the Cold War, certainly the early part of it, to tap into uh, Russian codes, Soviet codes, and see what was going on. Although there were successes, such as Operation Venona, that uncovered the likes of the nuclear traitors Klaus Fuchs. 
And so it goes on. And you come to today and you see GCHQ and the National Security Agency, over 30,000 employees at the National Security Agency. GCHQ in the UK has a budget over a billion pounds. These are incredibly important aspects of modern intelligence. And it's where the bulk of intelligence money goes on, is, is supercomputing and breaking codes and, and keeping outstations around the world, spying on the enemy. And this is what continues to this day and will go on into the future. But I talked about people like William Weisband and Kim Philby, and that really brings me to the postscript, in that if you can't break the code, you sometimes have to break the people. And so often it's going for the human element, the human weakness, that in the end breaks the code of the other side, breaks the cipher. I mean, it's extraordinary that codes in the past have been let down by laziness or human error. You go back to the Napoleonic Wars, and it was French laziness with their encoding techniques that allowed Major General George Scoville, who was uh, Wellington's, Duke of Wellington's head of codes, to break their code in a day. And Napoleon used 150 numbers, and it was pitiful and so easy to break uh, by the sort of early part of the 19th century, by about 1810, he was using a larger code, the great Paris cipher, and that had 1,400 numbers. But again, that was broken, partly because at the Battle of Victoria in 1813, the Duke of Wellington managed to capture uh, Emperor Joseph's code book. And so that allowed the, the Brits to break that code again very, very quickly. You look at Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, when she was held prisoner at Chartley Hall and having messages smuggled to her in a barrel, she used a basic substitution code that used symbols that were easily broken that represented European figures and things like that. So it's the human element that can be broken. What's clear is that it's not just decrypts, it's often undermining humans, taking advantage of human nature that helps the enemy and occasionally helps us as well. You can see that during the Cold War, Marcus Wolf, the head of East German intelligence, sent Romeo agents to basically undermine, subvert, seduce German secretaries. So you didn't have to decrypt codes. You simply had to get the secretaries to break into safes or hand over decrypted and highly classified material. And that helped the Soviets and their acolytes and their satellites uh, throughout the Cold War. You got someone like John Vassell, the fairly low-level naval cipher clerk and assistant to the naval attaché in Moscow for the UK. He was gay, he was caught in a honey trap, and he was blackmailed, and he spent time in prison. And he gave the Soviets a huge amount of classified material and naval secrets.
You go on to the Walker spy ring who handed uh, U.S. Navy secrets, uh, almost a million or so uh, decrypts and communications to the KGB uh, for a long period. So all these people are the human side of the decoding, the code-breaking side of things, that if you can't break the code, you simply break the person. And that, again, goes all the way through history. You take someone like John Cancross, who handed uh, about 6,000 secret files and decrypts to the Soviets. And during the Second World War, that helped the Soviets defeat the Germans at the Battle of Kursk. It has always gone on. Take someone like Ed Snowden today. He lives in Moscow. And there's someone who believes in openness and transparency and leaked a huge amount of secrets and classified information on Western and U.S. Uh, tapping of communications of enemies and cyber communications around the world. He, of course, believes, as I said, in openness and transparency, but the regime under which he lives uh, tends to throw people down the stairs or out of windows or poisons them with Novichok for disagreeing with them. So spot the irony, spot the hypocrisy. Well done, Ed. Anyway, that's it for today's Bloody Bites. Until next time, goodbye. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck. Good luck.